This morning we begin a new study together of Paul's letter to Titus. So you can turn in your Bibles, if you would, please along with me to one of the pastoral epistles, the letter to Titus. We often refer to this as a book, but it's actually just three short chapters. You can read the whole thing in just about five minutes, which we'll do in just a bit. Despite its brevity, the letter of Titus is of great strategic importance for the church today. The church has been compromised. It looks too much like the world and not enough like the Lord Jesus who died and rose again for her. Far too often there are immature, unqualified, and sometimes even ungodly people who lead the church. The church's teaching is too often filled with empty, vacuous messages that may entertain and tickle ears, but ultimately fails to truly edify with the Word of God. Those who are preaching these messages are often known more for their strong, contrarian personalities and their colorful, argumentative, bombastic style than they are for their godly character. Not only that, many of those who preach and lead the church are sadly motivated more out of a love for money than they are out of a love for the Lord Jesus. And if that is too often the condition of the pulpit, sadly the situation is often not much better in the pew. Which shouldn't surprise us, for as the pulpit goes, so goes the pew. As the leadership goes, so goes the church. These poorly taught Christians too often fail to live out the very truths that they say they believe. There seems to be very little difference between the way Christians live their lives and the way unbelievers live theirs. Too often, Christians' lives are marked by laziness, gossip, rebelliousness, drunkenness, and deceit. But this shouldn't be. The life of the Christian should be quite different from the life of the non-Christian. The gospel has begun a work of transformation from the inside out. This is what Paul says in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Let me just read that for you. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The message of Titus is that the gospel not only saves us, but it has a transforming impact upon our lives and upon our church. The gospel transforms 
The gospel has power to transform a life and transform a people. As Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12, the gospel instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The gospel is a constant instructor. It's always instructing us. The gospel is always pointing us back to the truth. The fundamental realities of who Christ is and who we are without Him and what He's done for us and the great future that He's purchased on our behalf. The gospel is our constant instructor. It shapes us and molds us so that we're no longer conformed to the world but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, in describing the problems of the church for you in this way, you may think that I've been talking about the problem of the church in our own day. While my description of a compromised church could certainly fit the present day, I've actually been summarizing the situation that Paul writes about in his letter to Titus on the Isle of Crete. This is the situation which Titus has parachuted into and which he's called on to remedy. A compromised church filled with compromised Christians who are living far more like the world than they are like Christ. Well, the reality is the church today desperately needs to hear the message of this little book we call Titus. The church today suffers from much the same illness that the churches of Crete were suffering from. And as Paul and the Holy Spirit who inspired his writings served as the doctor delivering the diagnosis to a sick patient, even so, for us, the gospel is the prescription that we desperately need. So before going any further, I want us to read this little letter together and begin to soak it in. And as I read it, be looking for the problems that the churches in Crete were facing and take note of what Paul says is the remedy for them. So let me read for you now Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 1 verse 1. Paul a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. In the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus. My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if a man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion... For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, 
self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. It's good to just publicly read your word together from beginning and end. Lord, we thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to Titus. We thank you that it is inspired of God. It is God-breathed, and therefore it is fully authoritative for us today. We pray, Lord, that we would be a church that listens and hears and heeds your word. Lord, that we would first do so individually, examining our hearts, seeing, Lord, are we, are we zealous for good deeds, that we might be a light to those who are around us? Are our lives distinctive from the common culture around us in any way? Lord, we pray that you would transform us by the power of the gospel. Continue your work in us, we ask. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, Titus chapter 1, verse 1. We see here that the Apostle Paul is the one writing this letter. He writes this letter around 63 A.D., so about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's writing possibly from Ephesus. It could be from Corinth. It could be from Nicopolis. It's not clear, nor is it absolutely essential that we know that. It doesn't help that much to know where he's writing from. He is writing this letter to Titus. We see that in verse 4. Titus was a trusted co-worker of the Apostle Paul, one of Paul's key lieutenants in the work of ministry, someone who Paul relied on heavily and traveled with extensively. Paul considered Titus his true child in a common faith, verse 2. Like Paul, Titus was a mature Christian, but unlike Paul, Titus was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. So here we have this Jew and Gentile working side by side for the spread of the gospel. Beautiful picture of the oneness we now share in Jesus Christ and the middle wall of separation has been removed. Titus was a Gentile about a decade earlier while he was in Jerusalem with Paul. Titus found himself at ground zero and perhaps awkwardly as exhibit A in the debate about whether Gentiles, non-Jews, need to be circumcised and adhere to the law of Moses in order for them to be saved and full participating partners in the church. Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes about Titus and this 
controversy that was taking place in Jerusalem. Galatians 2.1 says, After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Titus must have been relieved that Paul did not give in to the Judaizers. You can giggle at that. Titus had enjoyed a front row seat in ministry with the Apostle Paul. Time and time again, Titus had witnessed Paul preaching the gospel, clarifying the gospel, contending for the gospel, defending the gospel, and consistently living out the gospel. And now, here on the island of Crete, Titus was to follow in the great apostle's footsteps by making the gospel the center of his own life and modeling that by making the gospel the center of the message and the center of the life and ministry in the churches. But he was to do it without Paul by his side. He's alone on this one. Paul knows it, so he writes him a letter of encouragement, a letter of exhortation, a letter in which he tells Titus to to do the very things he saw modeled in Paul. For so many years. Titus is on the island of Crete. Picture behind me is of the island of Crete. Looks like a nice place. You could be sent to worse places. Titus has some, uh, in one sense, nice duty here. In another sense, he's got a very uphill job. I've included a map of Crete in, on the church app under sermon notes. So if you want to see that, your Bible may have that in the back as well. If you look at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul on a map in the back of your Bible, you'll likely see the island of Crete there. Crete is 160 miles long at its longest and 37 miles wide at its widest. It is 3,000 square miles or about three quarters the size of the big island of Hawaii, to give you some perspective. The people of Crete prided themselves on their cultural and historical significance, for the island was and is an important center of Greek civilization. It had a rich heritage dating all the way back to the Bronze Age, when the ancient Minoan civilization rose up there. As a part of the greater Greek culture, the people of Crete worshipped the pantheon of Greek gods, including Zeus, Poseidon, and Apollo. These gods were capricious and unpredictable. They were notorious for deceiving human beings and acting in all kinds of debauched ways. There was no sense that the Greek gods were holy in any kind of righteous way 
Cretans had a special relationship with a couple of Greek gods in particular. They had a special relationship to the Greek god Zeus, the greatest god in the pantheon. Zeus was supposedly born on the island of Crete, and he was raised there by nymphs. The Cretans were also said to have built the first temple to Zeus on Crete, and the island was considered one of the most sacred places in the ancient world. Zeus was often portrayed as using trickery and deception and cunning in order to seduce women, sometimes employing disguises and lies or false promises to win their affections and to let down their guard. Another Greek god that was special to the people of Crete was Dionysus, the god of wine. He was also said to be born on the island of Crete, and so he held a special place in the hearts, minds, and lives of the Cretans. Dionysus was associated with revelry and excess and was sometimes depicted as a carefree and indulgent deity who was more interested in drinking and in partying than in exerting himself. He didn't want to work. He just wants to bang on the drum all day. That's the god Dionysus. The people of Crete adopted many of the practices of these gods, and as a result... Their culture developed a far-reaching reputation for deceit and drunkenness and other forms of sinfulness. The reality is that we as human beings become what we worship. What we worship, what we value, what we prize, what we seek after has a way of shaping us, of molding us, of conforming us to the object of our worship. And the people of Crete had been distinctively shaped by what they worshipped. In fact, Paul quotes in chapter 1 and verse 12 from the famous poet-philosopher from Crete, Epimenides, who said this of his own people in 112, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's almost a bumper sticker. (laughs) Leanne and I were blessed to visit Crete for a day back in 2018 when you graciously sent us on a trip where we got to travel in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. It was awesome. Thank you. And incidentally, one of the Greek Orthodox churches on the island of Crete is said to have the skull of Titus which I saw, which they keep in a dazzling gold and silver box with a little window at the top. So you can just see the top of what is supposedly Titus's skull. Our tour guides on the trip were Greek, but they were not from Crete. And they said, you know, Epimenides was really right when he said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so the people of Crete are still living in the long shadow of that bad reputation. In fact, 
A special derogatory word was used for lying in Paul's day, and it was to cretinize. And a bit later, another word developed, and it was the adverb cretinly. To act cretinly was to act in a two-faced manner. You see, until they came to Christ, this was the only life and the only culture these Christians on Crete had ever known. They're first-generation Christians coming out of a totally pagan culture that's worshiping Dionysus, that's worshiping Zeus, that values lies and values drunkenness and values treachery. But the gospel had come and they had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and many of them had begun living new lives and many of them radically new lives in Christ. But some of them were growing more slowly. Some of them were having more trouble seeing the full implications that the gospel should make on our lives. And a big part of this was the fact that they had the wrong people in the pulpits. They had the wrong people in leadership in the church. People who themselves were not grounded in the gospel. People who themselves were not living out the implications of the gospel. So as goes the pulpit, so goes the church. So that's why Paul writes to Titus on the island of Crete. In contrast to the deceitful Zeus, Paul reminds Titus in the opening lines of his letter in verse 2 that the hope of the gospel is rooted in the promise of the true God who cannot lie. Contrary to the party animal Dionysus and his partying followers, Christians were not to be known as lazy drunkards. But instead, they were to be self-controlled and temperate and dignified. That's the power of the gospel working itself out in our lives. But they weren't hearing that. They were saying, they were hearing things like, well, you just, you just add Jesus to the way you were already living. You just sprinkle a little Jesus over what you're already doing. So with all of that as a backdrop, let me give you an outline for the book of Titus. An outline for the book of Titus. Titus, the gospel-transformed church. First of all, we see the gospel-transformed salutation in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're going to go through this very quickly. Secondly, we're going to see gospel-transformed church leaders, verses 5 through 16. Paul begins at the tip of the spear. He says, you've got to get the right people in leadership. You've got to get the right people preaching and teaching. The people that are actually believing and living the things that are in the scriptures. The truth of the gospel. Thirdly, gospel transformed church members. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. As church leaders and teachers and preachers are teaching the truth, the people will learn and they will grow and they will begin to experience the fullness of the transforming power of the gospel in their lives. Fourthly, gospel transforms citizens. 
The church isn't to remain cloistered away from others, but rather is to be integrated fully into the culture around it. Integrated not by practicing the same things and living by the same values, but integrated by rubbing shoulders with unbelievers and manifesting a radically different way of life. And then finally, fifthly, gospel-transformed greetings. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Titus is to remind the churches of Crete of both the truth of the gospel and the transforming power of the gospel. And Titus was to do everything that he could to ensure that the gospel was central to the life and ministry of the church. The gospel is the engine that drives the church. The gospel is not something that we speak in an introductory fashion and then we move on to other things that are more interesting and more important. The gospel is the meat and the potatoes. It's the main course. And it continues to be the driving engine of the church. Titus was to do everything that he could to ensure that the gospel was central to the life and ministry of the church and central to the life of church members. And he was to do this through leadership and teaching. How was Titus going to do this? Was he going to strong arm people? Was he going to come in and say, all right, people, shape up? Was he going to visit their homes and begin to make lists and tell them to shape up in this area or change that area? He would primarily do it through leadership and teaching. Titus 1.5. Again, this is one of those big purpose statements for the book of Titus. Titus 1.5, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Here we have this island, paradise, a Greek island, beautiful, beautiful weather, beautiful scenery. But when it comes to the church, things aren't as they ought to be. There are things that need fixing, things that need reform, things that need change. And Titus was the man to do it. He was to set in order what remains. And the way he was to do that was to begin by appointing elders in every city. Every city had a church. And those churches had elders. But those elders weren't always qualified. Those elders weren't always godly. Those elders weren't always saved. Those elders didn't always know the gospel themselves. And so Titus is to go around and he is to begin leading and teaching in these churches. Titus 1.13. Notice all the language about teaching and instruction and reproving and correcting Titus 1.13, this testimony is true. What I'm telling you is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they'll be sound in the faith. Titus 2.1, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That's what the church needs. Sound doctrine. Rooted in the gospel. 
Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Don't let them say, well, who are you, Titus? Well, I'll show you my credentials. I am coming under the authority of the Apostle Paul, who has apostolic authority, and he has sent me to do this job. If you oppose me, you oppose Paul. If you oppose Paul, you're opposing Jesus. Titus 3.1, remind them of these things. Put them in remembrance of these things. They've forgotten these things. Titus 3.8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So Titus's ministry was to be centralized around preaching and teaching and instruction and reproving and rebuking in public and private settings. Now in the worst possible cases, as Titus went around to these various churches and found out what was going on there... There were those in the churches who professed to be Christians, but who in fact were not. And their lives bore the sad fruit of that fact. In the worst cases, it was false teachers, Judaizers, who were mixing law and gospel together in a way that fundamentally destroyed the gospel message and the good news. Titus 1.16, look with me there. Speaking of these false teachers, and says they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Their walk didn't match their talk. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. These are worthless fellows. They don't do anything good. And they're leading the church. They're behind the pulpits. Instead, genuine Christians were to live lives that testified to the transforming power of the gospel. As Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 10, the Christian's life should adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. The Christian's life should be consistent with, should be in harmony with the gospel. People shouldn't be surprised to find out we're Christians. This was Paul's evangelistic strategy strategy for all the churches, not just on Crete, but everywhere. That by the Christian's good deeds and holy living, they would stand out in contrast to their surrounding culture. Pastor Rob hit on this very clearly in his equipping class this morning upstairs in the Great Hall. There's a lot of overlap between his message and mine today. That's not by mistake. Remind them of these things. This was Paul's evangelistic strategy in Philippi. Philippians 1.27, he tells the Philippians, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in a way that lives up to the gospel. That's worthy of the gospel. 
that's consistent with the teaching of the gospel. Philippians 2.15, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Jesus said we're to be salt and light to those around us. That means we've got to be in the world, we've got to be rubbing shoulders with the world, but we've got to be fundamentally different than the world. First Peter 2.12, not only the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle Peter, this was his strategy as well. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. As it turns out, the evangelistic power of the church is found not in its special events to which unbelievers are invited or in its outreach strategies or in its efforts to be attractive to unbelievers. No, the real evangelistic power of a church is found in its clear message of the gospel, a message that is underscored and given credibility as it is carried into the marketplace and into the schools and into the neighborhoods and into the office by Christians whose lives have been radically transformed by it. To adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, to adorn the gospel, as it says in Titus 2.10, is to wear the gospel like a garment so all can see it and observe your transformed life. And so Paul, throughout this letter, calls on Titus to remind the church to put off the misdeeds of darkness, to quit living like they're members of the first church of Zeus and Dionysus, and live like they are members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to put off the misdeeds of darkness and to put on the good deeds that are befitting of the gospel. Let me show you the emphasis on deeds in Titus. Deeds, good works. Titus 1.16, the false teachers who profess to know God deny Him by their sinful deeds. Chapter 2, verse 7, Young men are to, in all things, show themselves an example of good deeds, good works. Chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. He's redeemed us from our lawless deeds, our sinful deeds, and he's saved us unto good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 1, all Christians are to be ready for every good deed. A state of readiness to jump in and do good wherever you can. To meet a need wherever you see it, as you're able. Chapter 3, verse 8, all Christians are to be careful to engage in good deeds. Be careful. Exercise care so that the result is you engage in good deeds. If you're not careful, you're going to end up with a self-absorbed life. 
self-consumed, self-focused. The only good deeds you're interested in are those that benefit you. Paul says, take care, take great care, and make sure that your life is one of good deeds. Chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. The saddest thing in the world is to see the life of a Christian that is unfruitful, squandered, wasted, talents that are hidden, opportunities that are passed over. Good deeds are never the cause of our salvation, right? Any Christians here today? You out there? You with me? Good deeds are never the cause of our salvation. Good deeds are never the root of our salvation. But our good deeds are the fruit of our salvation. Paul is explicit in this letter that no one is ever saved by their good deeds, but only by God's mercy received by faith in Jesus Christ alone and His finished work on the cross. That's the gospel. Titus 3.5. Look with me there. Okay, Titus 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of what? Deeds, which we have done in righteousness. How are we saved? By making ourselves better? By cleaning ourselves up? By doing good deeds? By hoping the good we've done in life outweighs the bad we've done in life? Is that how we're saved? Is that the gospel? No, clearly not. We're saved not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. According to God's mercy, we didn't deserve it. God didn't look down and say, what a good person there. Look at all the good deeds they've done. I'm going to save them. No, His salvation is all of mercy. And thank God that it is, because if it required us to earn it, we never could. Jesus, though, paid it all. On the cross, Jesus, by his righteous life, fulfilled every lacking good deed we would ever fall short of. Our good deeds could never save us, but they do testify to the reality of what has saved us. And what has saved us is our faith in Jesus Christ. What has saved us is Christ himself and we've received the gift of that salvation simply by faith, believing God's promise that he would count all our sins and put them on Christ and count to us all of Christ's righteousness. We receive that great gift simply by faith. The fruit that a tree bears can help us to identify what kind of tree it is and also to assess the health of that tree. And so it is for us spiritually. Good deeds are not the gospel, but they are the fruit of the gospel that has taken root in a life. So the gospel is central to this letter. The gospel is mentioned at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of this letter. This little letter is shot through with the gospel and its life-transforming message. I want us to look at two of the main gospel passages just briefly as we're about to close. Titus 2.11. 
For the grace of God has appeared. Grace. God's grace. Not what we deserve. What we deserve is God's judgment. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy. Salvation. Forgiveness. Eternal life. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to all men. Now skip down to verse 14. Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. God, in his grace, has brought salvation to us. He's brought us through His Son, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us from every lawless deed. Look with me at Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. And this is just a treasure chest filled with redemptive riches. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to hope of eternal life. That's just gospel right there. It's, it's, It's gospel ruby and gospel gem and gospel diamond placed in this beautiful gospel crown that we get to wear. That's ours. That's taken us from being guilty in the eyes of God and deserving of His severest judgment to taking us and seating us around His table, making us sons and daughters, giving us an eternal inheritance of joy and life. The gospel is the heart of the Christian message and as such it must be the center of the church, the center of our faith, and the center of our lives. As we keep the gospel central to our lives and our church, it will transform us into greater and greater Christ-likeness. And we will increasingly live differently from the unbelieving world around us. And that, brothers and sisters, is the beauty and power of the gospel-transformed church. And that is the message of Titus that we're going to explore together in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there may be some here who aren't sure that they're Christians or haven't been sure up to this point. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes even at this very moment and show them the glories of the gospel the glorious treasure that is ours in Jesus Christ, that they would see that no amount of good deeds in their life could ever win them salvation, but that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to give them forgiveness and eternal life through His death, burial, and resurrection. And all they need to do is believe and trust in Jesus alone. To to stop trusting in self, saying, I can do it, I can do it on my own, That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. And it won't lead to eternal life. 
Lord, may they right now trust in you, Lord Jesus. Believe your promise and receive eternal life and forgiveness. Lord, for your church, we pray for continual transformation through the application of the gospel in our lives. As we dwell upon it, understand it better, preach it, declare it, speak it to one another, rejoice and sing about it to one another, Lord, may it evermore grow us in Christ-likeness, grow us in good deeds, grow us in the fruit that comes from a life that's been changed by the gospel. Lord, we ask it for the glory of your name, the good of your church. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.